Today, we're going to continue in our series on the book of 1 John. And um, today we are in week nine now of our series. And so next week is actually gonna be the series finale. Um, so make sure you come out for that. I think that's gonna be a really helpful teaching for us and how John wraps up this letter. It's maybe a little bit different than you might expect, but I think it's gonna be super, super helpful. But I'm looking forward to today's message. And um, since we don't have much time, I'm just gonna go ahead and fast forward and get right into this. And so we're gonna go to 1 John chapter five, and we're gonna read from verse four all the way to verse 12. So we've got a good amount of scripture to read through. And then we're gonna stop and unpack and figure out what exactly John is trying to tell us. So if you have your Bibles, your Bible apps, we'll put it on the screens for you, but please follow along with me. This is what John says at this part of his letter. He says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. So again, that's quite a bit of scripture that we just read through. And as you can imagine, there are plenty of concepts and ideas here that we need to unpack and rightly understand. But I would argue that what John has just laid before us is a little bit more simple than we might think on the surface. And the reason that I say that is John takes a really unique and creative approach to what he has just said, because he's almost taken a, a somewhat of a legal approach in how he has presented this. And what I mean by that is it's almost as if somebody were on trial or we were sitting in a courtroom, because when you're in that type of setting, there are three things that are going to consistently be laid in front of you. Number one, there's going to be a testimony, there's going to be evidence of that testimony, and then there's going to be a verdict. Those are the three things that you see in that setting. And I would argue that's exactly what John has just told us about. And so the way that we're going to try to understand this and, and unpack this is by working backwards from what we just read. We're going to start at the end of this set of scriptures and kind of work our way in reverse, because I think this is going to really open up the idea that John is trying to show us. And so again, because we don't have a ton of time, we're going to just jump right into this. And so the first thing that we see at the very end of these set of scriptures is the testimony. Okay. Now, this is a word that I'm sure you've heard before and have a general understanding of, but the definition of a testimony is a testing to or declaring a presumed fact. 
That's what a testimony is. It's proclaiming, declaring some sort of presumed fact. And as we read in verse 11, John makes this part very clear. This is what he says. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. So this is the the presumed fact that is being attested to or declared to us, that eternal life is available through Christ. But there are a few things about this testimony that we need to understand. And the first thing that we need to understand is that this testimony is what we would call the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, the testimony is the gospel. Now that's a word that we use quite a bit around here, but if you're not familiar with what that means, what we're talking about is the good news of Jesus Christ that he came to earth, that he took the punishment that we deserve, that he rose again three days later. And so through his death, our sins are paid for. And through his resurrection, we can have new life in him. That is the gospel. And this is the testimony that is laid before us. But then what John goes on to show us is very interesting. And that is that this testimony is God's testimony. I don't know if you've ever thought about it that way before or not, but the gospel is the testimony of God. In other words, this is his claim. He is the one that has declared this to be true. And so we don't believe the gospel because some random person said it is true. We believe the gospel because God says that it is true. He says that this is indeed a fact. And with this in mind, he says this in verse nine, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. Now, this is one of those things that we read in scripture and kind of pass right by because I think on the surface, that's quite simple. But I started to think about really just how true and profound this concept is. Because what I began to realize is that we put our trust and faith in other people every single day of our lives. Every single day, we take people at their word we, we trust their stories, we trust their research, we trust their opinions on certain things. And in fact, in many ways, this is what completely shapes our life. If, if you think about it, when you're born, what happens? You, you put your trust in your parents, the, these human beings that carve out this path for you, right? This is right and this is wrong and this is how to think and this is what to believe, right? They carve out this path for you. And then you get old enough and you head on to school where teachers and, and professors start carrying some of the weight of that, right? They start continuing to to line out this path and and they teach and they train. And then you graduate school and you head off to work and then the trainers and the bosses pick up that work, right? They continue to kind of forge your beliefs and your opinions. And through all of that, it just keeps coming, right? I mean, we, we read stories from other people. We read books from other people. We listen to podcasts from other people. And what we maybe don't realize is that we're just gladly taking in their testimonies, we're just, we're just gladly taking them at their word. And what John is trying to say is, if this is true, and it certainly is, how much more should we do this with the very testimony of God? How much more should we take him at his word? We're talking about a God that never lies. We're talking about a God who is all-knowing and full of wisdom. How much more should we take him at his word? And so when he says that eternal life is available through his son, this is something that we must consider. This is something that we must begin to lean into. And this is now what leads us to the next step, 
which is the evidence. Now that we know what the testimony is, now that we know this presumed fact that God has laid before us, now we have to consider the evidence. Now, I wanna set the expectation right out of the gate here that this section of scripture is a little bit different and and we're gonna have to really work our way through this. And so what I'm gonna do is lay a bunch of information in front of you to consider, okay? We're we're gonna dig pretty deep. So I need you to focus in on this. That's the only way you're gonna even begin to understand this. And I was a bit worried in my preparation with this part uh, of my message for that reason. But what I began to realize is that this is characteristic of evidence, Evidence truly is just laying a bunch of information in front of you and kind of teasing it out and figuring out what is true and how you are to respond to it. So I actually think this is really fitting under this particular section. So we're gonna read from verses six to eight. This is the evidence that John lays before us. We read, this is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the spirit who testifies because the spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement, okay? Now, as we read that, that's not gonna be super clear to us. We, we don't really understand initially how that is evidence, what that exactly means for us. But here is the bottom line of this section. John is trying to point to these things as evidence of the reality of Christ. This is what he is trying to show us. And we've talked about this several times throughout this series, but one of the foundations of this letter is understanding that John is writing this at a time where false teachers are prevalent. And one of the things that they are proclaiming is that Jesus is not truly the Messiah. This is what they're saying. They're saying maybe he was a good man. In fact, maybe even he was divine at times throughout his life, but he truly was not the son of God in the flesh. And so at this point, John is gonna lay evidence before them to refute that. Now, here's the thing, okay? That intent is clear. It's clear what John is trying to do. However, it's not 100% clear how exactly he's doing this. And in fact, there are many differing opinions on what exactly John is trying to say at this point in his letter. And so like we've done at times in this series, here's the approach that I wanna take. I wanna lay two different viewpoints in front of you as to what John might be referring to at this point in scripture. And then at that point, I'm gonna leave it in your hands to consider, to dig in and really find out where you will land, okay? Now, remember, this is all about evidence, evidence of Christ. That is what John is trying to do. So the first viewpoint is this, it's called the proof of death evidence. This is the first viewpoint. And what this would say is that John at this point in his letter is trying to prove the reality of the death of Christ and the benefits that come with it. Okay, that's what John is is trying to point us to, the reality of his death. And the way that he's gonna do this is by going back to a very interesting reference that he makes in his own gospel account at the time of the death of Jesus. So let's go to John chapter 19, starting in verse 33, this is what we read. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs, okay? So they would have broken his legs if he were still alive. That would have escalated the process, but he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. 
So there it is, the direct reference. But watch what he goes on to say. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. So this is what this viewpoint would would try to tell us. We see a clear reference to blood and water, but we also see it in the context of proof of testimony. Okay, so, so what they would say here is that both in John's letter and in his gospel account, we see the same exact references and we see them used in the same exact context as evidence or as proof of the reality of his death, okay? Now, I would say that because of this, it's a pretty convincing argument. I think there's a lot of things that certainly work in tandem there, but I do think there are two questions that we have to ask that I would say are a bit difficult to answer. Okay, and the first one is this. If blood and water together are evidence of Christ's death, why does John seem to specifically separate the two in his letter? So let's go back and read verse six so you can see what I mean. He says, this is the one who came by water and blood, not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. So so he seems to separate. Now, if this is a reference back to John 19, why would he do that when these are clearly used in tandem to show the death of of Christ. So that's the first question. The second question is, while blood and water are clearly referenced in his gospel account, where does the spirit come into play? Because this is what we read in verse seven, for there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood. So if he's specifically speaking of water and blood to prove the death of Christ, if that's what he's trying to do, why even throw the spirit into the mix? Why even add this element that doesn't really seem to directly apply to the reference that he's trying to make? So those are the two things you just kind of have to tease out and figure out what exactly is going on. I do think there are ways to answer those questions, but I do think they provide some difficulties, okay? So that's the proof of death evidence. This is what John is trying to show us. Now, the second viewpoint is much different. This is called the threefold incarnation evidence. So listen, while the first viewpoint is trying to prove the reality of the death of Christ, this viewpoint is trying to show the reality of his incarnation. In other words, that he truly was the son of God in the flesh. That's what John is trying to show us. And I'll tell you right out of the gate, this is the one that I tend to, to lean into a little bit more. And actually one of the reasons is what I just said. And that is that I do think this is much more about proving the reality of Christ rather than his death. I think that fits much better into the context of these scriptures as well as what the false teachers were speaking against at this time in history, okay? But with that being said, here is the foundation of this viewpoint. And that is that John is not talking about these ideas or concepts in terms of application, but rather in terms of events. In other words, I could go through scripture and I could very easily show you the symbolism of each one of these terms, right? It's very clear in the New Testament, water, blood, spirit, we could go through all the different terms. But actually, I think John is not so much pointing to these as symbols or applications, but rather as specific events in which these ideas are used as evidence. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, let's go through each one of these one by one so you can see what I'm talking about. Now, if we start with water, what is um, the event throughout the life of Christ that we immediately think about when it comes to water? That would be his baptism, right? So how exactly does this event prove the reality of who he was? How exactly would this prove that he is the son of God? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter three, starting in verse 16. 
This is what we read. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water and behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So at the baptism of Christ, we see the heavens open, we see the spirit descends and we see the father proudly declaring, this is, my, this is who he is, the son of God in the flesh. This is the evidence through water. Now, now let's move to blood. What, what exactly do we think about when we think of blood? We think of his death. So how exactly would this prove that he's the son of God in the flesh? Let's go back to Matthew's gospel, chapter 27, starting in verse 51. It says, and behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Verse 54, now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the son of God. So we see the veil torn, we see the earth shaking, we see the rocks breaking. And it was such great evidence of who he was that the people could only say, this truly is the son of God. So we see evidence from the water, we see evidence from the blood, but we do have one more, and that is the spirit. So how does the spirit play into this? And I would say that there's one more event in the gospel that's quite important that we haven't talked about, and that is his resurrection. And so watch what we read in Romans chapter one, verse four, that puts all of these things together so perfectly. This is what we read. He was publicly identified as God's son with power through his resurrection from the dead, which was based on who? The spirit of holiness. This is his public identification through the resurrection and the witness was the spirit. In fact, Jesus speaks this way of the Holy Spirit throughout his life. We go to John chapter 15, verse 26. He says, when the helper comes, who I will send to you from the father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father. He will testify about me. In other words, this is who the spirit is. This is what he does. He testifies to the person and the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. And so again, when John speaks of these things, I believe this is what he's pointing us to, these events that prove the evidence that Christ truly was the son of God in the flesh, okay? Now listen, regardless of where you might line up in these viewpoints, wherever you might find yourself, here's what we know at this point. Let's reset at this point, okay? We have the testimony from God. That is that eternal life is available through Christ, we now have some evidence that we are to consider to prove the legitimacy of Christ. And that leaves us with one final thing, and that is the verdict, the verdict. How exactly are we to determine the verdict? And so let's go to the very first scripture that we read today. This is chapter five, verse four. This is what we read. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So listen, the verdict ultimately comes down to one single thing, and that is faith. This is what is going to determine the verdict in our lives and where we stand. And so what I wanna do is I wanna talk a little bit about this concept of faith, because this is something that we throw around a lot, as we rightly should, but I think this is something that we don't fully understand. And I think it does a great disservice to how we live our lives when we don't fully understand it. So when we talk about the concept of faith, one of the first places that we can go is the book of Hebrews chapter 11. 
In fact, many theologians call this the hall of faith. In other words, these are the the greatest people of faith that we read about in scripture. But to begin that chapter in verse one, we actually have a biblical definition of the word faith. So this is what we read. Chapter 11, verse one, it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So if you've ever wondered to yourself, what exactly is faith? This is it. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Now, what exactly does that mean? How can we better understand this? And there are two words that really stand out here to me, okay? And that is the word assurance and the word conviction. These are the two most descriptive words that we have here. But what's interesting is if you go read different translations of the Bible, you're gonna get a lot of different words that come up around this. And oftentimes when that happens, I would argue that's when we need to go back to the Greek, to the original language and really understand what is being meant at the core of things. And so the word that is translated here as assurance is the Greek word hypostasis. And at the core of this, this word simply means confidence. It means to to be sure of something. So the word assurance is definitely fitting here. It's to be confident in the things that you hope for. It's to be steadfast. It's to plant your feet in the ground. That's what it means. But the second word here that's translated as conviction is a little bit more interesting because this is the Greek word elenkos. And what's so cool about this, especially within the context of our message, is that in the Greek, this is a legal term referring to a response of proof or evidence. So when we talk about a verdict, this is literally what this word means, a response of proof or evidence. That's what faith is. Now, listen, I think that gives us a much different view of faith than we typically think. And the reason that I say that is when we think about faith, I think we so often think of it as like this ethereal kind of abstract thing that we just can't get our arms wrapped around right? It's, it's this theoretical thing that's just kind of floating in the air that we just have to try to, to grab and get a hold of at some point. But according to Hebrews 11.1, 1, that's not what faith is at all. In fact, it's the opposite. Faith is confidence. Faith is conviction. Faith is just as real as anything that we can see or touch. That's what faith is. And in fact, I found this quote from John Phillips that I think says it so perfectly. Watch what he says about faith. He says, faith is a reality that reaches out to facts that are more solid, more real, more substantial, and more eternal than anything registered by our physical senses. That is so good. In other words, his claim is that faith is more real, that it is actually more true than what our eyes physically see and our hands physically touch. So it isn't some sort of abstract idea floating in the wind. It has substance, right? It has roots. It's it's every bit as real as anything that our senses can register. And this is exactly how faith is spoken of throughout the entire Bible. It is never spoken of as this ethereal idea. It is always spoken of as having substance. And one of the best places we can go to prove this is James chapter 2 verse 17, because this is what he says about it. He says, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. What James is saying is if faith is as real as we say it is, if faith is as true as we say it is, it will lead to action. There will be something that is produced from that if it is genuine faith. 
And this leads us to a very important and frankly fundamental aspect of faith that we have to understand. And that is, listen, faith is not a one-time experience. Faith is a lifestyle. Faith is a lifestyle. We so often think about faith as this one-time encounter, this initial faith that comes about in our lives. But we have to realize that genuine faith leads to active faith. Genuine faith is daily faith that plays out constantly in our lives. It is a mindset and a perspective that we literally live our lives by. That's what genuine faith is. And see, this is why the apostle Paul says that we walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, it's working, it's, it's moving, right? That's why James says that faith without works is dead because it must be active. It must be alive in us if it is indeed true. And interestingly enough, this concept of active faith is exactly what John is referring to at this point in his letter. Let's reread verse four so I can walk you through this. This is what we read. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So listen, when he references the word faith here, he's not talking about regenerating faith, although that's part of it. But what he is talking about is a lifestyle of faith. And the reason I know this is because he says that it's faith that overcomes the world. He says that it is faith that leads to victory. Now, sometimes when we read concepts like that in scripture, I think we struggle to understand what that really means. But within this context, there are two reasons why he makes this reference. Two things that he is pointing to, and that is victory over self and victory over the world. In other words, this is what genuine faith will lead you to, victory over self and victory over the world. So let's talk about those two things really quickly. We talk about victory over self. Here's how I want you to understand this. One of the things that we often talk about as it relates to God's grace is that many times the biggest barrier to it is our mindset. In other words, when we think about making our way to God, we feel like we have to like clean ourselves up, right? We kind of have to pick up all the pieces and, and put them all back together. And then maybe God will accept us that way. And in reality, what we have to realize is that all he wants us to do is come to him as we are by faith. He just wants us to, to trust him. That's what he desires from us. And what's interesting is this principle is not just a barrier in our initial faith, but it's also a barrier in our active faith. It's a barrier in our lifestyle of faith because listen, every single day in our relationships, in our giftings, in our ministries, we continue to think that we have to clean ourselves up. Our mindset is always that we just have to get better and be better and do better. And then we can effectively live our lives for God. And then we can be used by God at that point. But listen to me, instead, all God wants is the people that will continuously trust in him and just keep walking by faith. That's what he wants. Because here's the truth of the matter. He knows you're gonna stumble along. He knows that you're gonna trip and fall, but he just wants a people that will faithfully over the course of their lives, keep walking by faith. That's what he wants. Those are the people that God uses. Those are the people that God uses to impact lives and, and to change the world. People that willingly and diligently walk by faith. And catch this, when we do that, what we begin to understand is that this is how we experience victory. Because what we realize is that as we walk by faith, all of a sudden, this is when we experience the joy of the Lord. That when we walk by faith, we begin to experience his peace and, and his strength. That's how we experience it, through a life of faith in Christ. And that last part is everything. 
Because let me make it clear, we're talking about faith in Christ. In other words, faith is not just random belief in what we can't see. Faith is wholehearted belief in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what I'm sure of. That's what I'm convinced of. That's what I'm committed to. That's what faith is about. And that leads us to some pretty important implications that we need to be aware of. Namely, that my faith is not predicated on the fact that I'm gonna get everything that I want. That's not what faith is. Faith is not, I'm gonna get everything I want. Faith is predicated on the fact that I believe and trust in Christ, that he loves me, that he's with me, that he is enough regardless if I get what I want or not. That's what genuine faith is. And see, this is now what leads to victory over the world. Because what John is saying is when we put our faith in Christ, listen to me, when we genuinely put our faith and our trust in him, what happens is all of a sudden the pulls and the desires and the temptations of this world no longer have the victory over us. We, we begin to look at Christ versus the world and we see very clearly who is more worthy and who is more valuable of our love and our attention. In fact, remember in 1 John chapter 2, John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. Don't do that. And here he shows us we overcome that by faith. We win that battle by faith in Christ. In fact, Alexander McLaren poses it this way. This is something to consider. He says, does your faith do anything like that for you? Does it deaden the world's delights? Does it lift you above them? Does it make you a conqueror? If it does not, do you think it is worth calling faith? Is this your experience? Is this how you live your life? Is this the victory that you are experiencing? See, listen to me. The world is built to where it needs to get everything that it wants in order to experience joy, peace, and satisfaction. That's how the world is created. Even the most determined people will live their lives on the idea that if they just work hard enough, and if they just give it enough time and effort, they will eventually get what they want and desire. That's what we call worldly faith. If I just give it my best effort, if I continue to work hard, I'm gonna get what I want in this life. But faith in Christ is vastly different. It's completely different because true sustaining faith in Christ says, regardless of how things go for me, Jesus will be there and he is enough. That's what faith in Christ says. Whether I get the job or I don't, Christ is still enough. Whether I get the healing or not, Christ is still enough. If the entire world around me is crumbling, Jesus will be there and he is enough. That's what walking by faith in him leads us to. Again, it's not some sort of theoretical belief or hopeful wondering. It's confidence, it's conviction, it's assurance that Jesus is who he says he is and that our lives will follow suit. That we'll put our trust, that we'll put our hope in him. Now, here's the question at this point that we have to consider. This is, this is the part where we're gonna to have to apply these things to our lives. Because the question is, where is God asking for this in your life right now? Where is God requiring this of you right now? Because we can talk about the idea of faith all day long, we can talk about how it needs to be applied to our lives. But if we're not walking in it, if we're not moving in it, then it's dead. Where is God requiring faith in your life right now? Maybe it is initial faith in who he is and what he has done. 
But maybe it's a situation that you're going through. Maybe it's something you've been struggling with. Maybe it's something that you can't seem to let go. And he just wants you to trust him. He, he, just, he just wants you to trust him. And just keep moving, keep walking, keep faithfully serving him. You know, I was thinking about this this morning, but when we go to Galatians 5, we read the fruit of the spirit and we can go through all of those things. But what I begin to realize is that a lot of times when we look at the fruit of the spirit, we, we kind of put them in some sort of hierarchy. We kind of think about what is most important, what is least important. I think one of the things that so many of us are experiencing in this life is a lack of joy and a lack of peace. I think so many of us struggle. I know I struggle with that. What I began to realize is that a lack of these things is just as telling and just as damaging as a lack of love, a lack of self-control. In other words, just how submitted to him are we? Just how much do we trust him? What fruit is being produced in our lives? Are we walking by faith or are we walking by sight? Are we walking according to our desires and to what our little minds are confined to? Or do we trust that he's greater, that he's bigger, that he's full of wisdom, that he knows what he's doing? Are we trusting his promises? We need to be reminded of this. We need to to dwell in this. As I've said over and over again in this series, John, every topic that he brings up is gonna continue to point us to Christ. Over and over and over and over again, he's gonna continue to point us to him. And so if you feel a lack of faith, if you feel like this is just something that's not being produced in your life and it's not truly on display, I wanna read one more quote to you that really spoke to my heart. I think this is how we need to respond. This is what it said. Dear friends, my one word to you all is get near Jesus Christ by thought and love and trust. Trust to him and to the great love that gave itself for you. And then bring him into your life by daily reference to him of it all and by cultivating the habit of thinking about him as being present with you in the midst of it all. And so holding his hand, you will share in his victory. Get closer to Christ, get nearer to him. Think on him, dwell on him, meditate on him. Can we just close our eyes right now? Lord, right now I pray that you would open our hearts and minds to whatever it is you're trying to speak to us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move, that you would open doors that only you can open, that you would provide the wisdom and knowledge that only you can provide, that you can meet us where we're at. Whatever doubts, whatever fears we may have, that you would overcome. And that through it all, we would put our trust and our hope and our faith in you and you alone. 
God, I don't know what everybody's going through in the room. I don't know what their struggles have been. But I pray right now that we would release these things to you by faith. That we would truly trust that you're in control, that you know what you're doing. That we would truly trust what you're up to in our lives. Even though as we look at the physical world, it doesn't make sense and there's no way we can wrap our minds around it. And frankly, when we do that, we're just left with anxiety and fear and bitterness. But that we would truly be able to release it to you and trust in you that no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're carrying, that you know what you're up to, that you know what you're doing, and that we can live this life by faith, that we can continue to take every step by faith trusting in who you are, trusting in what you've done. Help us to walk by faith, God, to be a people of faith, to take action, to move in this, regardless of what's going on in our lives. We trust in you. We put our hope in you. In Jesus' name. I believe you will do it.